Hey there, this is Brian Zahn. We'll get to the sermon in a moment, but I wanted to let you know that Water to Wine 2019 is coming up June 13, 14, and 15. What is it? Well, it's a gathering right here in St. Joseph for those who sense the falseness prevailing in Americanized Christianity and yearn for something better. It's a gathering for those who want to see the church rescued from fundamentalism, consumerism, and nationalism. It's a gathering for those asking Jesus to transform their spiritual life from water to wine. Perry and I, of course, will be there, but we've invited some of our close friends to come and also be presenters, people like Sarah Bessie, Jonathan Martin, Cheryl Bridges-Johns, Rich Velodos, Joe Beach, and Derek Vreeland. We're all going to be there, and you can register now. You probably need to get on this and register now, and you do that at watertowinegathering.com. Watertowinegathering.com. Register for our Water to Wine Gathering this June here in St. Joseph. Today marks the end of our journey through Eastertide. As for seven Sundays, we have been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, risen, rose, Jesus alive again and forevermore is such a big deal that we take seven weeks, seven Sundays to celebrate. In that celebration, last Thursday, we marked the ascension. Last Thursday was Ascension Day. It is 40 days after Easter, and it often kind of comes and goes without a whole lot of acknowledgement. So I want to spend a little time this morning talking, though it's, it's Easter tide, and this is an Easter message, but I want to go back a little bit to Thursday and talk a bit about Ascension Day. That's the day when we remember that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Ascension Day is still celebrated in Europe, though here in the United States, uh, there's not much mention. Again, you don't get the day off for Ascension Day. But I think if we don't quite get Ascension right, then our understanding of Jesus in the kingdom of God is a bit skewed. So let's go back just a bit and rewind the tape going back 2,000 years ago and think about the life of Jesus. One of the beautiful things about the Christian calendar with its holidays like Ascension Day, with Eastertide, with these seasons, one of the beautiful things about the Christian calendar, it is a creative way to tell and retell every year the story of Jesus. Why do we give attention to the calendar? Because the calendar gives attention to Jesus. And so let's rewind the tape and think back to the life of Jesus. After his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days talking about what Jesus liked to talk about the most. That is the kingdom of God. This was the single topic of all of the sermons of Jesus. This indeed was his favorite subject, the kingdom of God. And so after his resurrection, when he's meeting with his disciples, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about God's kingdom come from heaven to earth. And then we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 6. So when they had come together, they, being the disciples, asked him, that's Jesus, 
Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice where their thinking was at this point. They had put all of their hope in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the world's true Lord. They were trusting in Jesus. He had shocked them, though he had warned them, shocked them by his death on a cross. He rose up from the dead. And what they're thinking about is the kingdom, because this is what Jesus had been talking about. So they asked, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And as Jesus often did, he didn't give them a simple and easy answer. He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now he's forecasting what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. This is the ascension event. While he was going up, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the account of the ascension of Jesus. And here, the ascension is pictured as Jesus going up from the earth into heaven, a cloud taking him away. And so one of the ways that we can think about the ascension is that Jesus went up into heaven until that day that Jesus returns fully to bring heaven to earth. But I think that that somewhat, this picture somewhat causes confusion because when we see here in Acts 1, Jesus going up, we think of the ascension as Jesus doing a a Superman thing and like bursting through the clouds and going up through the air. But I think that that's not quite What's happening with the ascension of Jesus? He is ascending. He is going into heaven. This is true. But some people ask, what is he doing up there? What's what's happening? What's Jesus doing there? The answer is found in the Apostles' Creed where we confess he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. In his ascension, as he disappeared from the eyes of his disciples, he did ascend into heaven. There he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the ascension is not so much about the direction that Jesus is going. It's not so much that Jesus is going up. A better way to think about the ascension is to think about it as Jesus' promotion. I think that's helpful. So as you're learning the the language of the Christian faith and the language of the calendar with things like Ascension Day, when you hear Ascension, I want you to think promotion. Okay, let's work on that for a little bit. I say Ascension, you say promotion. Ascension. Hey, that's pretty good front row. Good job. All right, back row. Here we go. Back sections. I say Ascension, you say. There we go. This is what I want you to get in your minds, that when you think about Jesus' Ascension, 
It's not about going up as much as it is a promotion. He was promoted to the right hand of the Father. This was the ultimate promotion to the ultimate place of authority. Jesus' ascension is Jesus' promotion. It's the day that Jesus got a promotion. And so that will be the the title for the sermon today, Jesus Gets a Promotion. Before I was a pastor, and I've, I've served now going on almost 20 years. This September will be 20 years that I've, I've served and worked as a pastor. But before that, in the 1990s, when I was in seminary at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I worked for WorldCom, a fast-growing telecommunications company. It was an extremely fast-growing company. When I got hired, our department was about 18, 19 people. After three years when I left, it was almost 80 people just in my department. WorldCom has an interesting story. It was fast-growing through the 90s, but it fell in the early 2000s under a, a financial scandal. But WorldCom was a big player in the 1990s, and as it was growing, they were hiring employees, and, and I got a job there. I got hired as a part-time employee in the wholesale division of this large telecommunications company. So it was wholesale. In other words, our customers were other long-distance companies. How many of you over the age of 35 remember back in the 90s when we would get hounded by telemarketers wanting you to switch your long-distance service? Right, you remember that? Right, those companies were our customers. So WorldCom had a large fiber optic network and these other companies would lease time on our network to resell long-distance service. Now, so for, you, so for you like teenagers in particular in early 20s, this is all before cell phones were around, right? Everything was about long-distance service. And you had, it's strange, you had to pay for long-distance calls. So you had to have a long-distance character, a carrier. So we had this network and customers would use it. So I was hired to be a customer service rep uh, there at WorldCom. And so I was in seminary working hard, and I worked hard at my job. And about a year, year and a half into it, I got a call from our department manager. She wanted to see me in her office. And this was not just my direct supervisor. This was the department manager who reported to the vice president of the company. So as you can imagine, I was nervous. I'm thinking, oh, man, what did I do? And so I went into her office, And she said, I would like to offer you a promotion. I want to promote you to a supervisor position. I appreciate all the hard work you've done. You're a great employee. So I want to give you this promotion. All you have to do is transition from a part-time employee to a full-time employee. All she said, all you got to do is just give me 40 hours a week. Now, I was in seminary full-time. Seminary education is graduate-level education, and I was taking a full load. That was lots of books and papers, and so I'd only been working part-time. And this was really unheard of. Throughout our company, I did not know of any part-time supervisors, but she offered this to me. And so, of course, I was honored, I was humbled, and I went home, and I talked to Jenny about it, and I thought, I don't know how I can give full attention to to school and my work there and work part-time, and 
So I got back to her, I scheduled an appointment, went to her office, and I, I told her, I said, I'm, I'm so humbled and honored that you're offering me this promotion, but I have to decline. I, just, I, can't, I can't give you 40 hours. And she tried to talk me out of it. She's like, well, you can work, if you, you can work you know, 12 hours on Saturday, a couple hours on Sunday. I'll work around your school schedule. I, I just want to make this happen. And I said, I appreciate it so much, but I'm going to have to decline. Then the most surprising thing happened. She promoted me anyway. She said, all right, well, how about this? I want to make you a supervisor and put you in a, in a role of sort of first-level escalation as a supervisor on the weekend. So you'll carry a beeper, another piece of ancient technology. Some of you remember beepers. So if you'll carry a beeper, you can be on call on the weekends as a first-level supervisor and then just do special projects and other things uh, throughout the week. And I was, I was just I was blown away. Because part-time employees with no benefits, no vacation, no stock options are not offered a promotion like this. And yet I was. It was God's grace to me. I understand. I had, I had ascended from the lowly ranks of a customer service rep slaving on the phones. I had been promoted to management where I had authority. I could make decisions. I could tell people what to do. Man, for Enneagram 3, this is great. And it also came with a little raise, which was helpful for a poor seminary student. So you see, I ascended the ranks. See what happened there? I was promoted. Perhaps this is a way that we can think about Jesus and the ascension. That Jesus was promoted. And so when we remember the ascension of Jesus, we remember the day when God promoted Jesus to the ultimate place of authority, seated at the right hand of the God. Jesus was promoted, seated at the right hand of the Father. So think of it like this. Jesus began as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. So there is Jesus in glory from before creation. And then in a, in a specific time in history, Jesus descended from the glories of heaven into humanity. This is the Christmas story. We call it the incarnation, God becoming human. So Jesus descends from the glories of heaven into humanity and then ultimately, Jesus descends further into suffering humanity. This is his passion. This is Holy Week. And ultimately, in his trial, his arrest and trial, Jesus is entering into and finding solidarity with suffering humanity, ultimately suffering that takes him to the cross. And at the cross, then Jesus descends as far down as you can go. Jesus descends into death. So I want you to picture this descent from heaven into humanity, from humanity into suffering humanity, from suffering humanity into death. But then remember, it's Easter tide. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead. This was his first step in ascension. He ascended out of death, defeating death into a new and glorified humanity, Jesus alive again. And then on Ascension Day, we celebrate then when Jesus was ultimately ascended back into heaven, promoted to this place of authority. So from heaven to humanity, into suffering humanity, into death. 
and then ascension through resurrection and ultimately this grand promotion to the right hand of the Father. And though Jesus is hidden from our eyes, we believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning over the earth from the control room of heaven. This is the beauty of the ascension. Now, in our scripture reading today, we heard Jesus pray a prayer. This is in John 17. Jesus prays a prayer for the church. Jesus prays. I ask not only on behalf of these, that's his disciples gathered around him, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's a beautiful prayer. Jesus making intercession for the church, not only for those that were living and following Jesus when he was there on the earth praying this prayer, but also, do you notice, he's praying for me and you. Because we're the ones who believe in Jesus through the preaching, through the word of the disciples. Jesus was praying for us that we would be one. That we would find unity in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, love relationship. That we would be in God, that God would be in us, and that together we would experience oneness and unity. And notice the reason Jesus prays here, the reason why. We are to be one so that through the way we relate to one another, in our unity, in the way that we love one another and respect one another and care for one another, that because of that, we will be a witness to the world that they might believe in King Jesus, that they might see lived out in human form a different way, a different kingdom. You see, God's purpose, going all the way back to Abraham of old and moving forward, was to have a big, united, multicultural family that was united as one. In Ephesians, Paul calls this, this is the great mystery that's been revealed in Jesus that all along God has wanted to have this great big family. And why does God want one big, united, multicultural family? It's not to discard all the other families of the earth, but rather as God promised to Abraham, he wants this big united family so that through this big united family, God could bless all the families of the earth. And so our responsibility in this family is to love one another, is to get along with one another, is yes at times to put up with and bear with one another. Again, our unity serves as a witness to the world, ultimately, that they might believe in Jesus and be invited in to join what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to create unity out of diversity, which is the same purpose of all earthly empires and powerful, influential nations like the American Experiment. You know, one of the early mottos of the United States was the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. 
In fact, you, you, this is around more often than you think because this Latin phrase is printed on all the money and the coinage of the United States. I got, a, I got a quarter here. And if you look on the backside of a quarter, for example, right above the eagle's head, there it is, e pluribus unum. Latin phrase, and it means out of the many, one. See, the American experiment is essentially the latest in what all earthly kingdoms have been trying to do. Trying to create unity out of diversity. How can different people, diverse people, live together as one? And so the kingdoms of men, they have their various uh, orienting principles in which they will try to form unity out of diversity. Things like military might and wealth and the rule of law, various religious practices and vague notions of freedom. But the organizing principle of the kingdom of God is Jesus himself. King Jesus is that orienting principle for the kingdom of God that is drawing a diverse people and forming unity out of diversity. So what the kingdoms of men have been attempting to do from the beginning of human history has now been accomplished through King Jesus. Because now on the earth there is, depending on how you count it, two billion people around the world in different nations of different ethnicities that all worship King Jesus as one people. And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, that, that great ancient Christian hymn, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, through his ascension, is given a name that is worthy of our worship and our obedience. And Jesus is the central organizing principle of the kingdom of God, like a great light that is drawing all sorts of different people together into one body, into the body of Christ, into the body of Messiah. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we find our unity and our common life in our common submission to King Jesus, in that we are all in agreement that Jesus is king, we are not, he has the highest place of authority, I do not, and we are all looking to follow and walk in the ways of King Jesus. We are the people who together say yes to King Jesus and say no to the gods of this world. Jesus comes in triumph through his resurrection and by his ascension to put out of business all of the gods of this world. Somebody say amen to that. This is the great triumph of Jesus. So that now when people say they don't believe in God, the God they don't believe in is the one true living God of creation. 
It's true to say that this, these, the other gods, the gods of the, the ancient Greek and Roman pantheon, they're all put out of business. But that's not the end of the story. See, the kingdom of God has come in and through Jesus. And now that he's ascended, Jesus is ruling and reigning. And the kingdom of God is here. But the kingdom of God is also coming. So we're at this strange overlap that the kingdom has broken into this world, and yet the kingdom is coming. In other words, the kingdom is not here in its fullness. So here's what's happened to to those old gods who've been put out of business, the old gods like Mammon and Aphrodite and Mars. Do you know what they did? They went off and got bankruptcy protection, and they reorganized, and they're still around. These ancient gods that were worshipped thousands and thousands of years ago, yes, they've been put out of business by King Jesus, but dang it, they found a loophole in the law, and they found bankruptcy protection. Now they have reorganized, except they reorganized under a different name. So we don't know them as Mammon, Aphrodite, and Mars anymore. We know them by their new name, money, sex, and power. These are the gods of this world that are pulling for our allegiance. But the truth is, the world will never see and believe in King Jesus if we are dividing our loyalties between King Jesus and the gods of this world. So we'll take just a little bit of time and talk about this old trio of gods for just a moment And perhaps Jesus will show us a way to say no to those gods and yes to him. First, let's start with mammon. Number one, we worship money whenever we value the pursuit of wealth and possessions over the pursuit of the kingdom of God. So money, as you know, is not inherently evil, but greed That is the desire for more and more and more, never being satisfied, hoarding wealth and possessions for oneself with an unwillingness to share. This is sin. Jesus said, life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. Such wisdom there. Now, the God of money will disagree, but King Jesus says life is not a matter of of just acquiring more stuff. Because isn't it true, the more stuff you have, the more stress you have. Now, see, all the Apple users are like, I have no stress. I am an Apple user. The rest of you PC people are like, yes, we're stressed. We have stuff. The more stress, the more stuff you have, the more stress you have. And so Jesus says, this is not the way you build life. Life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. Now, I don't want to overstate the point because Jesus knows that you need things, right? You you need things to eat and you need things to wear. You need things to drive. Jesus knows you need things. But Jesus said, if it is your pursuit of things, stuff, wealth, and possessions, it's going to lead you down the path of destruction. Jesus says, rather, if you will seek first the kingdom of God. Remember, this is what the promotion of Jesus is about. He is promoted to the right hand of the Father that he might rule the earth from heaven, that the kingdom of God might come and expand on the earth. Jesus says, if you will first 
seek after and pursue God's kingdom, God's authority, God's rule and reign, God's way of doing things. If you will seek that first and God's justice, then he'll make sure, King Jesus will make sure that you have everything you need. Number two, the worship of Aphrodite. We worship sexuality whenever we allow our sexual desire to determine what is right and wrong. Now, in the ancient world, temple prostitution was used in the worship of Aphrodite. There would be prostitutes at the door of the temple. And so as a religious act, as an act of worship, people would have sex with prostitutes. And as you can understand, this was a popular pagan religion. But for the Christians of the first century, they said, no way. Because Christians from the beginning saw their sexuality as a sacred gift given from God to humanity to be experienced between a husband and wife in the beautiful covenant of marriage. And so while there was cultural pressure to determine your sexuality based on desire, early Christians said no to the worship of Aphrodite, and they said yes to the God of creation. Jesus said... It isn't eating certain kinds of food that defiles you. Now, I'm jumping right into a, a longer thought here from Jesus, but Jesus is, is, is wrestling with the Jewish law that had these dietary restrictions that if you were going to be the people of God, then you would eat a certain way and eat certain kinds of foods. So Jesus says, it isn't eating certain kinds of food that makes us unclean, but it is the things that come out of the heart. Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. See, when we let our desire determine sexual ethics instead of King Jesus, we are allowing that evil sexual desire to flow out of our hearts. And Jesus says that is what corrupts us. So we say no to the worship of Aphrodite. Finally, the third, number three, we worship power. That's Mars, the god of war. We worship power whenever we use power to take advantage of someone else or manipulate them to do what we want. The worship of power can be seen on a large scale, of course, through acts of violence and intimidation, but the same kind of worship, this worship of power can also be seen on a small scale when we try to force and manipulate people to do what we want. Jesus told his disciples this in Mark 10. This is in Mark 10, verse 42 through 44. Jesus says, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. Interesting phrase. We'll get to that in a second. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. 
The disciples had in their mind, their, their minds and imagination, they were, they were conditioned by the worship of Mars all around them. The worship of power was all around them. Power and domination was all around them. And so they thought, great, we're following King Jesus. So when do we get these great positions of power where we can get people to do what we want them to do? Jesus says, it's not going to be like that among you. See here, Mark 10, Jesus uses this phrase, lorded over. That means that means. The Gentiles, the, the, those outside of the kingdom, they use, they lord it over. They, they use power in order to dominate. And Jesus said, it won't be so among you. Jesus says, the way you're going to lead is not from a position of power on top of society. You're going to lead by, by becoming a part of the lowest rung of the ladder in society. You become a servant, even a slave. For Jesus, especially, we see this through the cross, Jesus is reinterpreting what it even means to have power. So he's telling his disciples, you can't worship the God of Mars anymore. It's no longer going to be force and domination. It's going to be love. It's going to be servanthood. That's how you're going to go forth in my kingdom. So as followers of King Jesus, who is promoted, ascended, exalted, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I would begin by saying, first, we have to repent. That is, we have to rethink some things. We have to repent of the worship of mammon and Aphrodite and Mars. We have to understand their reorganized presence in our very present day. And we have to rethink money and sex and power. And we have to think about the money that we have. We have to think about our sexuality. We have to think about our finances and possessions and whatever power that we have. And we have to submit all those to King Jesus. This is what Jesus said. This is the way of discipleship. The, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me has to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. And a part of that self-denial is in reflection to Jesus Christ upon the cross where we are emptying ourselves and we're giving what we have and who we are to King Jesus, trusting that King Jesus will transform us and change us so that we can become fully alive, so we can become our true selves. So what should we do? We got to rethink. We, we have to Understand that Jesus is promoted, he's exalted, he's ruling and reigning, and now we got to rethink some things in his kingdom. And so before we come to the table of communion, let's pray for a moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Maybe stand up with me as we pray. Go ahead and stand up on your feet. We'll pray for just a moment, and then we'll get ready to come to the table of the Lord.